Hello, and welcome to Jiu-Jitsu Red to Blue. I'm Tish Durkin, and today I have the ideal guest with whom to take a deep breath and a nice calm pause to consider the cold facts about a very hot topic, crime and punishment, pre-trial punishment. Experts are really clear on exactly what caused the giant wave of crime that certainly did rise and break all over America in those pandemic years of 2020-2021. But MAGA took no time at all to shout from every rooftop owned by Rupert Murdoch, its soft-headed woke criminal justice reform initiatives pushed by soft-headed woke Democrats such as my guest, New York State Senator Michael Giannaris. Elected to his current office in 2011, Senator Ginaris became the assistant majority leader in 2019. Over the years, he's made big headlines as a foe of Amazon, a friend of reproductive rights, and a lightning rod on redistricting. But no political hot potato is more scorching than the spuddy dug up when he wrote the Bail Elimination Act, which took effect right as our nation became fixated on that rise in crime. Now, a few years, several sets of rollbacks in that law, and a raft of data later, we're going to take a deep breath and a calm, clear-eyed look at how the bail reform facts on the ground compare with the bail reform frenzy in the air, if, in fact, those two have anything in common at all. Senator, welcome. Thank you, Tish, and thank you for uh, giving the opportunity for a clear-headed view of this uh, of this much maligned issue. Well, that's what this podcast is all about, like uh, looking at the narrative and sorting out what's true, what's false you know, what, uh, what's, what's someplace in between. And this is such an important issue of, of, uh, such, um, that's been building for so many years. Uh, uh, and there's so many angles to look at. So, and of course we could, you know, we've got 30 minutes, we could take 30 years, uh, to, to, uh, delve into everything about it, but I just want to start with kind of a very wide lens that sort of the average person, uh, who's been subjected to all these headlines in recent years, um, could understand. So for example, if I were to say to you, as I think a lot of people, you know, say to themselves, um, you know, I, I, I certainly don't want people's civil rights to be violated. I certainly don't want anyone to be punished for being poor or for not being white. Um, I, I care deeply about the constitution. Um, but I, I don't want to be mugged. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't care about those things so much that I'm willing to sacrifice my personal safety and and that of my family and you know in the last couple of years it does sort of feel like uh some of these reforms including bail reform have 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 kicked in and uh, all these people are you know going to jail and then just getting let out right away and and now I don't feel safe so there's got to be some kind of a connection isn't there uh the short answer is no and you know, I was listening to uh, to your intro there it's it was I was waiting for the but and of course there was a but in that sentence I care about this I don't want to over-incarcerate people. I don't want to put keep people in jail who may have been innocent of what they're charged with, but I may rather do that uh, if it makes me feel safer and if it's not my kind of people that are being uh, thrown into Rikers. But um, So that's kind of the overlay here. You either care about these things uh, or you don't, and sometimes the, um, they overlap. Um, and so you can't throw your principles uh, in the garbage just because you're uh, overreacting to a situation. I, in, in your intro to the podcast, you had mentioned that uh, this was part of uh, an increase in crime nationwide. Uh, and that's 100% true. In fact, New York may have felt it less acutely than other areas. 
Uh, and so that, to me, makes the case more than ever that uh, there was something going on more globally, something bigger. I wonder what that could be. Oh, my gosh, the pandemic uh, created uh, un, uh, unprecedented restrictions on movement, on people in public places, on uh, did, did untold damage to the economy. Uh, and therefore, crime went up everywhere. Um, New York was the only place that enacted a, a law like this at the time. And so to lay uh, a nationwide crime increase uh, at the feet of one state's reforms is obviously nonsensical. There was something bigger at play. Um, and now that crime is uh, beginning to recede and hopefully continues to do so, uh, lo and behold, um, in our political world, we're hearing less and less attacks on, on bail reform because all this ever was was uh, a masterclass demagoguery. Uh, people who decided that uh, the public is rightfully concerned about a crime increase. Here's something that coincidentally happened at the same time uh, that our opponents did. Let's blame it all on that and use people's fears to score political points. Unfortunately, it was very effective, but uh, we're still standing. Uh, This issue has been used against us in the state Senate going on three uh, election cycles now, and we're still sitting on a supermajority. So uh, it it has created uh, unnecessary fear. Uh, it has um, unfortunately diverted us from focusing on the real underlying causes of, of whatever crime increase there may have been. Um, and uh, has I've never seen an issue in all my years in public service so um, badly uh, 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 misused to play on people's fears. Hopefully we're coming out of the back end of that now. Now, you know, it's it's hard to to think about uh, bail reform in New York without uh, thinking about Rikers, and as you know, uh, there's just been recently the announcement of something of a commission called Rikers 2.0, because Rikers, which for those of you who don't know, is the uh, largest uh, jail system in New York, and it is has become notorious uh, both for the overcrowding and the violence and the um, incredibly unsanitary conditions in which uh, people are kept there. But I think most people may not realize that 90% of the inmates in Rikers uh, have never been convicted of anything. Uh, They're just in pretrial detention, and they stay there an average of 226 days. So I, and uh, we'll, we'll get to the economics of that in a second, but I think one thing that it's worth reflecting upon, even if we're only thinking about our own personal safety and whether or not uh, something is good for us in the immediate term and not so much about the, the social implications for others. Um, I think there's this idea that if you, if you stick somebody in Rikers, you're erring on the side of your own safety, but if you think about what the experience of being in a place like Rikers is, uh, it it makes total sense to look at the data, which shows that recidivism rates and rates of violence and everything are greater uh, on the part of people who spend time in pretrial de- detention in such places than um, on the part of people who uh, are are released uh, without without being detained for a long period of time. Um, do you have any? Have you been able to make any headway of uh, of convincing people of that as time goes on? Well, yeah, and let's unravel that because there's so many layers to that issue. First of all, the uh, suggestion that people who may have committed these crimes are free to walk the streets, uh, you know, or not held accountable for their actions, is complete fiction for the reason you just indicated. We're only talking about pre-trial detention here. 
Um, and so even if someone uh, avoids bail because uh, the changes in the law we made, they are still going to be held account on their underlying charges. There will still be a date in which they face trial, and if they're convicted, uh, will be sentenced. None of that changes. Uh, and so the idea that somehow somebody who, in a matter of months, will be uh, uh, faced with uh, a, a, a part of our justice system um, and be held accountable for that will, in the interim time, run rampant through uh, through the city or state uh, because why they want to be charged with additional crimes in the meantime. Like I don't know what that is. Eventually, these people will be held to account if, they, in fact, they're guilty. Um, but you make an even better point, which is if we are concerned about uh, the effects on broader society and the community outside of the people who are charged with crimes, spending time at Rikers does not help uh, the general community safety because by all accounts, the more time you spend on Rikers waiting for your child, the more likely you are to commit crimes when you're out, the less stable your life becomes. Uh, you lose your job, you lose your housing, all the things that contribute to pushing people uh, to do uh, unsavory things uh, are exacerbated by uh, the time they spend on Rikers Island or any other jail for that matter. Um, and so by allowing uh, people charged with crimes to maintain stability in their lives while their case uh, is awaiting adjudication uh, only helps everybody. Um, and so it, it, one of the things we did in the law, which I think in retrospect was, was very smart, was we required uh, data reporting from the criminal justice agency of the state so we can actually see what, you know, who was let out because of the changes in the law uh, while their trial is pending, uh, how many of them reoffended, et cetera. And all the data lays the lie there, which is uh, the rates of reoffense uh, are no greater. In fact, in some cases, less than before this law was uh, was enacted. And so it's like I said earlier, the the amount of misinformation around this is like nothing I've ever seen. I, I read articles in the New York Post and other. Um, uh, media outlets that uh, were attacking a particular crime or alleged crime um, for occurring because of the law. And in the in the article itself, it would say, and bail was set in this case. Therefore, it's the problem of bail reform. But obviously, bail reform was intended to remove bail. So if there's a case where bail was set, that has nothing at all to do with, with the laws that we changed. Um, and yet that doesn't stop them from putting it on the front page. And, and the hypocrisy runs runs rampant. You, you and I have spoken in the past how this law was enacted in 2019. In 2018, there was a full-page advertisement in the New York Times demanding that we enact bail reform. Uh, and among the signatories were none other than Rupert Murdoch and some of the business leaders in our city who are now clamoring for the law to be rolled back. And so it, it, it's nonsensical. Um, it has been... Nothing but a political tool. And like I said, fortunately, at least uh, in the state legislature, it has not worked. And the other thing I find, I do find interesting myself is that we are now in, you know, well into, you know, decade umpteenth of things like the death penalty and three strikes and you're out and all kinds of other things like that. The war on drugs um, being, you know, wildly discredited uh, and on every level, just in terms of uh, cost, effective uh, uh, cost, efficacy, all kinds of things like that. But because I, I think because they seem tough, um, we stick with them as if it's more dangerous to try to think about some other things that might be less costly or that might work a little bit better or something like that. Um, 
And the bail reform law uh, came into effect, and 15 minutes later, uh, everybody was, you know, screaming for it to be uh, amended, as it was amended a couple of times. I mean, what do you think of the amendments? Do you think it, it, it strengthened the law, or was it just sort of political? Look, the, the fundamental principles we tried to enact in 2019 was that for nonviolent offenses, uh, people should not be forced to pay for their freedom while they're awaiting trial. And I think the bulk of that reform is in place. Uh, we have uh, tried to be sensitive to specific concerns about uh, perpetual reoffenders. So even if it's a nonviolent offense and you continue to be charged uh, with crimes over and over again while you're out pending your first trial, then yes, we, we agree that that should be handled uh, perhaps a little more severely. Uh, but the fundamental principle is that uh, if you are charged with a misdemeanor or a nonviolent felony, uh, that you shouldn't have to pay to be free. And of course, this all comes down to the discrimination, uh, socioeconomic uh, and otherwise, that exists in that system. Because I always use the example, Harvey Weinstein was accused of awful, awful things. Obviously, a, a repeat offender, done this multiple times, a chronic uh, offender, he's rich. And so while he was waiting his trial, he was at home in his penthouse, or I would read on page six that he would be out in clubs or whatever he was doing, having a grand old time while he was waiting for his day in court. Uh, I dare say a young black man in his 20s would not have that luxury because he couldn't afford whatever bail was set and he would be in jail. And that is the fundamental um, discrimination that we were trying to rid our system of. Uh, and I believe we have uh, quite successfully. Uh, and so, yes, go ahead. I, well, I think just to just to put it in perspective for folks, I think something like 12 percent of defendants are able to make bail. And the bails are generally what. Uh, an average middle-class person would find very uh, affordable, but not for someone who is not well-to-do. I, I happen to, I live very close to Rikers and um, I had volunteered for a while uh, to um, help uh, people who were about to be released to reintegrate into society and kind of a mentorship program. So I spent some time there and talked to people. And there was a, a young man who I met there who um, his bail was set at $500, I think it was. And he just had no, it was not even a thought that he might make that. I was like, oh, well, how did you end up right? He's like, oh, well, the bill was set at 500. How would I ever come up with that? And you know, that's what we're dealing with here is people who are not uh, capable of uh, providing for themselves the way others might uh, being thrown in a place that only makes them worse and perpetuates this cycle of violence and criminality that we're trying to get everybody out of. And also, just getting back to to Rikers, the other thing about you know our friends in the GOP are so interested in in uh, cutting taxes. Uh, Rikers, if you look at any of these reports, it's it's hair raisingly filthy, violent. Uh, one government official went there not too long ago and reported that it was so overcrowded that people were urinating into plastic bags, etc. I think ninety one. People have been slashed or stabbed in just this past August and September, th th this type of stuff. And that place costs $1,200 per inmate per day. That is, it's, it, it costs almost half a million dollars a year to keep somebody in Rikers. And it's not that most people are in there for a year, although they're in there for close to a year, some of them, um, and some for more than that. but. That place is full and over full at, at a cost to taxpayers that if you ever said, oh, we're going to take 
15% of that figure and divert it into, you know, community programs or education or, you know, you, you know, pick your, pick your alternative, it would be viewed as, you know, great liberal largesse. But this is what we're paying for alleged safety. And so I think, and I don't think people realize that. No, you're absolutely right. The, the way our criminal system works right now is completely upside down and only makes the problem worse, uh, not better. Um, and as you pointed out, at a more expensive clip also. Um, and the reason is that there's political advantage to doing that. And for a large segment of the population um, who, you know, you started out this podcast by saying there are people who understand the need for you know the presumption of innocence and don't, don't want to discriminate against people. But, you know, when they're afraid they might get mugged on the corner, all that goes out the window and they'd rather just uh, throw people in jail for the time being so they could feel safer. But you know why they do that? Because it's not people like them or their friends or their friends' children who are going to be subject to this. Um, and that is, um, you know, a real flaw in the way uh, our society views and deals with these things. And it's like, okay, my neighbor's kid's not going to be the one doing this. And by the way, if they are, they'll have the money to, to pay their way out on bail while they're waiting for trial. But let's take the poor kids who are accused of the exact same thing and lock them up because I don't want to see them standing on a street corner. Or I don't want to imagine that the reason I'm scared is because they are, they are still out, even though there is no connection to the data or the science around this. Um, and it's eternally frustrating. And those who... Um, who demagogue the issue for political gain are some of the worst at political actors I've ever encountered because they just don't care. Um, and they would rather punish people who are already being punished by society in so many ways uh, just because they want to win a couple of elections. And P.S. they're not very good at winning elections either uh, because they haven't done that very successfully. Well, now, since you since you bring that up, one one thing that is sort of striking is that that in New York and in other places, but we'll we'll think about New York. One of the striking things about the political debate around this is that some of the loudest voices calling for rolling the law back and 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 characterizing the 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 um, bail reform as the root of the spike in crime have been very prominent Democrats, including Mayor Adams, Governor Hochul. Uh, and some of the congressional candidates uh, who who ended up losing or uh, losing their seats in uh, New York State, and uh, so how do you square that? Like, how do we handle the fact that we've got our own, you know, our own people uh, are kind of um, adopting Republican talking points on this? Well, we we can have a whole separate podcast interview about the civil war in the Democratic Party between the centrists and progressives, but. Uh, my general view is if you're going to campaign like a Republican, uh, voters would generally choose your Republican opponent who is more authentic in that viewpoint <laughs> than, than you are. But what I would say specifically to New York is there is no entity more identified with bail reform than the state legislature, the Senate and the Assembly. Uh, and in the very same elections, in the very same districts, the Senate and Assembly both return supermajorities to the state legislature, but somehow our congressional uh, colleagues lost their elections. I would say, in part, that's because they were too busy chasing Republicans' tails while we were out there making the case about why we did what we did and why it was the right thing to do. Uh, people want to see a vision. People want to elect someone who believes in what they're doing, not just telling them what they want to hear. Um, and so I think the flaw was more in the execution of campaigns and what the candidates were saying than uh, than the underlying uh, subject of the attacks, because 
there was no group of uh, candidates that fared better than the state Senate and state assembly in these elections while members of our congressional delegation were losing. Now, Lee Zeldin obviously was hammering Governor Hochul on the issue of crime and bail reform and, and other things. And do you, you, you think that, you know, she ended up winning by six points, which in some places is a lot, but in New York for a Democrat is not because the uh, voter registration is two to one uh, Democratic. Uh, do you think that she would still have won had she not sort of staked out this position of like, I'm going to rein in the the legislature. Oh, I certainly think she would have won otherwise. And I, I think most, um, like I'm not here to perform an autopsy on, on her campaign, but most observers think she was very slow to um, engage in that campaign and react to the attacks one way or the other. And um, you know, she got it together, I think, in the last month of the campaign, thankfully, because it, it kind of stopped the slide. Uh, but if she was firing on all cylinders earlier in the year, uh, I think the margin would have been much greater. But she uh, Lee Zeldin is, a, is an effective campaigner, and he spent much of the summer um, firing away without much uh, uh, in the way of incoming uh, against him, and the results were what they were. But nonetheless, New York's a Democratic state. The governor won. The legislature won. Even in Congress, we elected more Democrats than not. Um, and, uh, and we'll go from here and hopefully uh, improve things even more going forward. Now, do you think that since as the, the data continues to build to the effect that, for example, bail, bail reform has had a, a negligible, if not negative effect on, you know, negative in a good way effect on uh, rates of reoffense and and things of that nature. And as crime rates decline generally, that it's not going to be such a hot button in 2024 for those same congressional candidates who are going to want to attack on, you know, Mike Johnson and, uh, abortion and other things. Yeah, 100%, you're correct. Um, and it's funny, I was just saying that to someone. More importantly, I think the most important piece is as crime rates decline. Mm-hmm. This is, uh, you know, the Republican playbook going back for decades has been find what people are fearful of the most and find a way to blame your opponents for it. Uh, and so when crime, people were concerned about crime, understandably so. What the Republicans did, uh, and some Democrats, as you point out, was point at this thing that coincidentally happened at the same time and blame everything on that. And they thought it was an effective political attack. I was just telling someone who's involved in our campaigns last week that expect to see a lot less of that next year because lo and behold, people are concerned about other things now. Um, And there's other demagoguery that's about to happen, particularly as it relates to the asylum seekers and the influx of migrants into New York. Um, and so you're going to see, I predict, the, the top attack will no longer be bail reform uh, and the increasing crime because crime is, in fact, starting to recede. Um, but it's going to be the handling of uh, the asylum seekers here in New York. Think about crime more broadly, and this isn't just about bail reform, but it's one of the it's the it's the original reason I started doing my podcast, because I could not believe that Republicans were so successfully uh, taking on crime as an issue that would be bad for Democrats when crime rates are so much higher in Republican areas. And um, one one statistic I came across recently, which which uh, I found very entertaining, which was which was that the the week that uh, 
Jim Jordan was in Manhattan complaining of, or either I'm not sure he was actually in Manhattan, but he was talking about the the rate of crime in Manhattan and how terrible it was and all this. And and uh, some criminologists looked it up and found that in Columbus, Ohio, you were five times more likely to be killed than you are in Manhattan, and you are seven point five times more likely to be carjacked. And that is just true all over the place. You know, Fresno, California, uh, Kevin McCarthy's district, uh, Bakersfield. Uh, all of these places have got, you know, runaway rates of, of particularly violent assaults and obviously firearms related stuff. And Democrats just did did not give it back to them. Do you have any thought as a Democrat as to why they don't do that? It's It's some kind of political culture that has evolved over the years. And I think Republicans' entire campaign strategy, as far back as I can remember, is scare people and tell them your opponents to blame for it. Uh, and Democratic candidates do one of two things. They either react to that and play defense and pretend they're no different than their Republican opponents, which is generally a recipe for failure, in my opinion, or they present a positive vision um, that inspires people. If you look back just at the national level, Democratic success stories at the presidential level, Barack Obama, his whole campaign was built on hope and positivity. Bill Clinton, whatever you believe about what he did in retrospect, similarly looking to the future, the, the young generation moving into, into leadership roles. That's how Democrats win. You very rarely see a Democrat win an election like that when they're like, I'm not as bad as the Republican. I, I believe most of the stuff they also believe in. So like me, like why, why pick a Democrat if all you're saying is I'm just like the other guy uh, or gal? Um, and so it, it it's just something that we have to settle internally. And I think we're in the process of, of uh, having that discussion as Democrats is which uh, is the best vision uh, for us moving forward. But Republicans are consistent and they're very good and they just do the same, run out the same playbook, which is why I think now the asylum seekers will be the next uh, chapter of this story because they find the thing people are most afraid of and they drill home that their opponents are to blame for it. They, they win on fear. Uh, and scaring people. Um, and we don't, and that's to our credit, I think, but we've got to be good at executing our, our vision. Now, now, just getting back for a minute to the whole bail reform thing, I'm wondering how Eric Adams is going to square the circle of needing to close Rikers by 2027 while not fully embracing decarceration strategies. Yeah. Uh, that's a very good question. And I don't know that there's an answer. The only way you can close Rikers without decarcerating more is open new jails elsewhere. And that has proven um, not an effective plan. <laughs> the city council. I started. mean, they are going to have to open some, you know, there is a plan to open the other, other jails, but, but the population will be a lot smaller. Well, no, yeah, but they've had very um, much difficulty getting approvals for them uh, and everywhere they're proposing them. You know, generates opposition. That's a city problem, I guess, but uh, you're absolutely right. The whole reason that the Rikers uh, closure discussion started was because carceration rates dropped as crime dropped over the years. Um, and now um, with the reforms that we have made should drop even further, uh, meaning that there's there's less of a need for it. Now, you know, bail policy is set at the state level, so I guess whether the mayor supports it or not is not relevant to whether uh, the incarceration rates uh, grow or, or decline, but uh, nonetheless, I mean, there's a reason why the federal government is on the verge of taking over administration of uh, of Rikers because it's a disaster. 
Now, and, and, and I know I'm jump, jumping around here, but I, I'm conscious of your time. Uh, the, uh, the, the other piece of this that I think a lot of people who are not necessarily in a community that's uh, affected by a lot of incarceration, um, thing, the thing that we miss is that when people are uh, stuck in pretrial detention, it also has an effect on the, 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 the economy of their immediate community and on like the workings of that community, because obviously uh, the person is, you know, loses a job and, you know, so on and so forth. And do you have, like, how would you bullet point that for somebody like uh, in terms of the root causes of crime or the, the long-term prospects of keeping people well, out, it, of, out of, it's not like, you know, we, it's not like we don't know what leads to increases in crime. You know, we, we walk around setting policy as if there are some people who are just born evil and are criminals and there's nothing that affects that. That's obviously nonsense. We know that economic squalor leads to increasing crime. We know that substance abuse leads to increasing crime. We, we know what the factors are. And if we focus on um, improving those, you will see crime continue to decline. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, um, our politics has led us to a point where throw people somewhere where you won't ever see them and, and lock it up um, is the way we set policy. And that's just made, that's made those communities where those people come from worse off, certainly from a safety perspective, also from an economic perspective. Uh, if these people continue to work and have jobs and employment and uh, have vibrant families while they're awaiting uh, a, a trial, um, by the way, that means good news for their local businesses and the small bodegas and the um, community uh, businesses that would continue to do better when there's economic activity there. If you take a large segment of a particular population um, and put them in jail, obviously that community is going to suffer in so many ways. And we can't isolate. We can't say, well, that's that community, not mine, because it's those exact conditions that lead to an increase in crime that then affects everybody. So we've just been looking at this whole thing backwards up until we started making these reforms and changes, which I think uh, despite all the noise um, have uh, been and will be seen as a very positive development ultimately um, in the course of our uh, criminal system policy. Now, just quickly also, another thing that I think many people may not realize is that some 97% of criminal um, cases are not resolved in the way that we traditionally think that they're resolved, which is through a trial. Uh, almost all of them are um, dealt with via what's called a plea bargain. And many analysts have been saying for many years that the fact of pretrial incarceration uh, leads people to plead guilty preemptively. And there are those who would say, well, that's great because it it saves the court time and money and they probably are guilty. But uh, I found it interesting to note that people who are uh, not detained uh, plead guilty at a lower rate than people who um, are detained. And, and, and I'll tell you why. The reason that happens, um, and I can tell you right now, there are scores of people who are innocent and plead guilty. And the reason is, you mentioned at the outset, it takes you know, close to a year to get a trial date. Uh, and the particular charges we talk about uh, as it relates to bail reform are misdemeanors and lower level felonies. Your sentence after conviction will likely be less time than you will spend in jail waiting for your trial. Uh, and so if you're uh, someone who may have not committed a crime, uh, a shoplifting, uh, uh, a burglary, whatever you're charged with, um, but you're sitting there, you're like, well, let's see, I could sit in Rikers for nine, 10 months, have a trial, 
even if I'm found not guilty, I will have spent that time in jail. If I'm found guilty, I will have spent that time in jail. My sentence will be the same. Why not get out right away by pleading guilty? It's not an illogical or irrational mm-hmm. um, judgment for someone mm-hmm. to make. Of course, that then becomes a stain on their record, makes it harder to get a job, makes it harder to get uh, a good education. And so uh, the cycles of um, discriminatory policy that perpetuates um, uh, uh, the uh, the difference between those who have and those who have not um, continues unabated in that kind of a system. And how how expensive or or possible how impossible or possible would it be, like like to have a system whereby you know it didn't take a year to get a trial date? Um, or, you know, you could kind of well, you know like it it does seem. Like all of these things, when you there are many policy areas, as you know, that when you read them and you 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 get into some of the facts, you just cannot believe that this is the way things actually you know function. Yeah, or the, that's amazing. Yeah, there are other planks of the reforms we made that are meant to address that, and each of them leads to a predictable outcry from those who are affected. So we we also uh, did something called discovery reform, mm-hmm. which is to say the district attorneys and the police have to move faster to provide evidence to a defendant so that. So the trials can be adjudicated quicker and they could be ready for their defense as well. Uh, and, and by the way, the rules we set were the rules Texas, of all places, has in place and has had in place for a long time. But we set them here in New York and everyone's kicking and screaming that you know, it's impossible and we're you know, tearing apart the fabrics of society, which is uh, obviously nonsense. Um, so any thread of this uh, infrastructure that we try to pull apart to repair uh, becomes a subject of uh, uh, of a uh, political war that uh, it's our job to fight and to win, and we're doing it, but it's uh, at great cost to um, uh, public confidence in the system. Mm. Yeah, actually, speaking of Texas, I, I you know there was that uh, class action lawsuit a few years back, whereby a woman who was in jail for uh, driving without a valid license got bail of twenty five hundred dollars. And so she was quote unquote only stuck in jail for two days, but she became the, the chief plaintiff of a of a of a big class action lawsuit that that led uh, Harris County to uh, implement bail reform in connection with which, which it found you know guilty pleas went down as did um, recidivism rates. But I I bring up uh, the the driver license uh, scenario because I I was also astonished to read that in Michigan as of 2020. The third most common reason that people were in jail was for driving without a valid license. So they weren't, you know, shoplifting. They weren't harassing anybody, let alone, you know, mugging anybody or anything. They were just driving around without without a license and they are incarcerated and cannot get out. I mean, some of them get out, but I mean, it's it's I, I think that the scope of it is truly astonishing. And in New York the fact that you can go to a really terrible place for on the basis of being accused of quite a minor thing, as we saw with poor uh, Khalif Browder, who was accused of stealing a backpack and stayed there for three years, 800 days in solitary confinement, is just the idea that people wanting to change that system would be considered the crazies is kind of there's a there's a tremendous um, infrastructure built in to defend the status quo 
and it involves law enforcement and correction officers and DAs and right-wing media and right-wing politics. And all of that came together in this case to lead to the firestorm that you saw. But um, this is, you know, this is our politics for better or for worse. And so we've got to fight through it and get there. Um, and that's what we have done uh, here in New York. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll continue to move forward. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Senator Michael Giannaris. Keep fighting the good fight. And the rest of us just need to remember that when it comes to MAGA and crime, they're great on rhetoric, but they've got nothing to do with reality. Thanks for listening. Tune in for more of Jiu-Jitsu Red to Blue. New episodes drop every Thursday morning.